Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 35, 2 Samuel, chapters 22 and 23. Well, as we continue in 2 Samuel 22, we're going to start at verse 29 today. And like last week, we're going to do this in small chunks since this is a, a long chapter. And there's a number of important implications and applications in this week's study that I think you're going to enjoy. Now to get our feet set for today, let's talk for a moment about what we saw occurring in this famous psalm of thanksgiving in the preceding verses. Now our attention was focused on David's words that he viewed himself as essentially meriting God's deliverance as a reward for his good and faithful behavior towards God. David says that he was recompensed by Yehovah for his tzedakah, his righteous justice. And this was proved by his having kept himself from avon. Our complete Jewish Bible says sin, but it more means guilt, more means depravity, depraved behavior. And we have to look back no further than 2 Samuel chapter 12 to see that David's high opinion of himself and feeling that whatever he had done must have been relatively minor is not justifiable. Because in chapter 12, Nathan the prophet brings God's oracle of curse upon David and all of his household for the terrible evil that David had done most recently centering on his illicit affair with a married woman, Bathsheba, then the murder of her husband, Uriah, to cover it up. And as we discussed last time, rabbis would take me to task for such a view, since they say that David's claim of purity and innocence is true, because he never committed as much as a single trespass against the Torah or the Torah law. Christian scholarship, on the other hand, is generally mute on the subject, or at least doesn't directly challenge David's assertion of sinlessness. If Christian commentators do ever discuss it, often their position is that David is speaking of this higher more ethereal kind of spiritual innocence that a believer receives when we accept our salvation. That is, we're forgiven of our sins and then God doesn't see our sinful condition any longer. Now, those typical positions can really only be upheld by applying liberal amounts of allegorical interpretation to these scriptural passages and by reading modern church doctrines backwards into the Old Testament accounts. There is no mention or implication in this song of David formerly committing sins but then having those sins forgiven. Even the rabbis admit that David is boldly saying that his behavior has been flawless. So this is not an issue of deliverance from sins. 
but rather deliverance from earthly enemies and foreign governments. Thus it seems to me that we need to accept, as unsavory as it is, that David is merely boasting and has a seriously distorted view of his life and his behavior before the Lord. He seems to have forgotten that Yehovah saved him for a purpose greater than himself and that the several deliverances were acts of pure divine grace and they were based on a promise that God made to David and to his offspring. And because the father, the father is always faithful to his word. David was delivered then time after time. Merit was of no issue whatsoever. Let's read a little bit more. We're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 22 verses 29 through 32. Page 360 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. For you, Adonai, are my lamp. Adonai lights up my darkness. With you, I can run through a whole troop of men. With my God, I can leap a wall. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of Adonai has been tested by fire. He shields all who take refuge in Him. For who is God but Adonai? And who is a rock but our God? This verse begins an explanation of the kind of help that David received in times past and he would continue to receive it. And he would get this from the Lord as he confronts Israel's enemies. And first is the deliverance from darkness. Now in the Bible, darkness always indicates obscurity and blindness. A lamp and illumination indicates truth, deliverance, and salvation. David says that Yehovah is the source of illumination. He's the lamp. And therefore he gives deliverance from the darkness. He injects truth into obscurity. The Hebrew word used here for darkness is choshech. And choshech carries with it a sense of spiritual darkness, of evil, as opposed to the mere absence of light, such as is normal at, at nighttime. It's that same word for darkness that we find in the Exodus account of the terrifying darkness that supernaturally fell over Egypt in order to bring about the release of God's people from their bondage. Thus we are to understand that this verse connects back to verse 28 that says that God saves His afflicted people. Or in Hebrew, God's afflicted Am. See, David is part of that afflicted Am. And since it pleased the Lord to save David, the Lord gave David power all of over all of God's and Israel's enemies. But this, this situation also deals with David's state of mind. Because David was known to become depressed when things went badly for him. And we're given plenty of evidence of, of these episodes of depression 
in his many psalms pleading for Yehovah to rescue him. Thus the statement includes the reality that the Lord has lifted David's mental darkness, his depression. Now let me pause to remind us of a God principle. God delivers His people. He does not deliver those who aren't His. That doesn't mean that He doesn't communicate with people who are not His, nor does it mean He might not help a non-believer in their distress if it suits some larger divine purpose. But I also want to say something else to you. This mental darkness... This depression that David was suffering was a normal kind of depression. That is to say that when we have something overwhelming or tragic happen to us, it's humanly normal to be depressed over it. David was not suffering from a depression that rose to the level of emotional or mental illness. But he was in a dark place as he was occasionally in fear for his life or about to lose his kingdom or he was in danger of losing a a battle to an enemy. The antithesis of David's depressions is demonstrated in King Saul. King Saul suffered from mental illness from an abnormal kind and level of depression that also led to an irrational paranoia. Now, I would argue that Saul's depression came from a spiritual source. He strongly rebelled against God. God left him, and it led him to a kind of insanity. God did not deliver Saul from his depression that was due to Saul's sin and his blasphemy. Because in the Lord's eyes, Saul was no longer part of God's alm, his people. Of course God can. And it often pleases him to deliver his redeemed from mental illness. And I personally know of such cases. I am by no means an expert on such a debilitating disease as mental illness. But I do know that while some of it might be caused by spiritual influences, not all is. Further, it is true that both God's people and those who are not His can suffer from mental illness and depression. I've known a number of believers who have dealt with depression and they often worry needlessly, at least I think so, that it It's insufficient faith on their part that causes their recurring bouts of depression. Or just as common that in the loss of a loved one or a terrible setback of some kind, loss of job, a financial calamity, that they just can't shake their depression. And so they think that they're in a damaged relationship with God. it's, It's kind of the other side of the prosperity doctrine that says if you just have enough faith you'll always be rich and happy. And so if you don't you'll always be poor and sad. And that's a a false doctrine. 
that of itself has oppressed many folks. King David, let me tell you, was as mentally tough as it gets. And he was as loved of God as it gets. And even he suffered terrible setbacks and so felt depressed for extended periods of time. But what he knew to do was to cry out to God. And God came to his aid. We must do the same thing. But we, we, we must also be acutely aware that sometimes depression is a legitimate medical condition. And it needs to be treated with medicine as well as prayer. There's no shame in it. There is certainly no condemnation from the Lord implied in such a circumstance. Well then in verse 32 we get a reminder of what we discussed in a previous lesson about David's and Israel's cultural understanding of God. And the rhetorical question is asked, Who is God but Adonai? What it says in Hebrew is, Who is El but Yehovah? Thus David is saying that Yehovah is Israel's El. And in fact, Yehovah is the ultimate El. And this connects back to verse 14, whereby David refers to Yehovah as Ha El Yon, the highest El. And if you weren't here, you've forgotten our discussion of Ha El Yon and the meaning of El in those times, then review lesson 34, last week's lesson. But there's another application for us about this in our day. See, God is Yehovah. He is the God of Israel. God is not Allah. God is not Buddha. God is not the old man upstairs. God is not the generic intelligence of the universe. He's not an unnamed God. He's not an interfaith God. God is one. He is Echad. He is holy. There is one God. His name is Yehovah. He is the God of the Bible. There is no other. Praying to Allah is not unknowingly praying to Jesus as many Christian denominational leaders now say. It is unknowingly praying to nothing at best. Maybe Satan at worst. Let's read a little bit more of 2 Samuel 22. We're going to read 33 through 37. God is my strength and protection. He makes my way go straight. He makes me swift and sure-footed as a deer and enables me to stand on my high places. He trains my hands for war until my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield, which is salvation. Your answers make me great. You lengthen the steps I can take, yet my ankles do not turn.
Yehovah is pictured here as an impenetrable place of sanctuary for David and, and all who are God's people. But the next stanza says something that we read occasionally in the Bible and usually misunderstand it. And it is where it says that God makes my way go straight. My way does not mean the path that lies in front of me. It doesn't mean my direction on that path. Rather, it means my manner, my behavior. That is, the Lord teaches us His way, so we adopt that as our way. And such a way is truth. In biblical terms, straight means to be true. It means to be without deception, without fault. The Lord also makes David's feet swift as a deer, a hind, so that he can outrun his enemies either to escape or to overtake them. And those same swift feet take David to his high places. The Hebrew term for high places, bemah. It's a religious site. It's a place where God dwells. So then why does David refer to the place where God dwells as my, David's, high place? It's because all nations had their high places of the gods. David is saying that the Lord gave him swift feet to run to Jehovah, his God, the high place where David's God dwells, as opposed to running to some other high place of some other God. That David was a great warrior is how he's probably best remembered. And no doubt his days on the victorious battlefield is something that David fondly remembered in his old age. Thus in verse 35, David credits the Lord for showing him how to fight holy war. And the Lord also gives David the strength to wield weapons in a way that the enemy cannot. Using the metaphor of bending a bow made not out of supple wood, but rather rigid metal. And a metal bow stores so much more energy than a wood bow and thus is far deadlier when it's unleashed. On the other hand, it's the rare warrior who has the wherewithal to operate such a formidable weapon as a bronze bow. Holy Scriptures tell us that prayer is perhaps our strongest weapon in this present world. Prayer is our connection to the source of whatever power and might we might have. Thus, when prayer is used by a prayer warrior of the God of Israel, and he or she is trained up in prayer, knows how to pray, it's a most awesome weapon like a bronze bow. However, for the person who doesn't really know God, who doesn't understand the power of prayer, who doesn't know how to pray in God's will, it's a much less effective weapon, like a wooden bow. Well, 
the complete Jewish Bible translates verse 36 wonderfully. Whereas most Bibles will say that you, meaning God, you God, give to me the shield of salvation, the complete Jewish Bible says that you give me your shield, which is salvation. Just as prayer is our powerful bow of bronze, but is fully useful in the hands only of a trained prayer warrior, so is salvation in Yeshua our shield from the arrows being shot at us by our enemy, Satan, and whomever he might be using to attack us. But see, that shield, that can't be conjured up by us. We can't merit it. We can't design it. We can't work up enough faith from inside of us to manufacture it. This shield is given to us from afar. It's a gift from God that's been transported through time and space to benefit us. And it's only available from Him. Let's move on. Let's read a little bit more. Verses 38 through 49. I pursued my enemies and wiped them out without turning back until they were destroyed. I destroyed them, crushed them. They can't get up. They've fallen under my feet. For you braced me with strength for the battle and bent down my adversaries beneath me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight so that I could destroy those who hate me. They looked, but there was no one to help, even to Adonai, but he didn't answer. I pulverized them like dust on the ground, pounded and stamped on them like mud in the streets. You also freed me from the quarrels of my people. You kept me to be the head of the nations, a people I did not know now serve me. Foreigners come cringing to me. The moment they hear of me, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart as they stagger from their fortresses. Adonai is alive. Blessed is my rock. Exalted be God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gives me vengeance and makes people submit to me. He brings me out from my enemies. You raise me over those who rebel against me. You rescue me from violent men. All of these verses are referring to holy war. Let me recall for you that the holy war that began with Joshua was never successfully completed. The goal was to rid God's kingdom, the promised land, of those who didn't belong there. And who didn't belong there was all who didn't wholeheartedly worship Him. It was not a requirement that all Canaanites be killed. If they were driven out of the land, that was acceptable to God. The Lord's preference was for the Canaanites to give up their wicked false gods and instead to worship the God of Israel, which essentially changed their identity from Canaanite to Israelite. But forced conversion was never contemplated. Any conversion was to be modeled on Rahab. 
the harlot innkeeper of Jericho, who witnessed the power of the God of Israel and gave her trust to him by her own free will. The only Canaanites to be killed were those who did not choose to worship Jehovah and, instead of leaving, chose to stand and fight. And as a parenthesis, because it's so often overlooked, the only place on the whole earth that was under those holy war instructions was Canaan, the promised land. The other nations of the earth were in no physical danger from Israel. God didn't tell Israel to go, to go conquer the Middle East. This was a limited holy war, limited to the promised land, but it's also an uncompleted holy war. Well, thus the elements of the holy war continued on into David's day. And since David was committed to this holy war, God equipped him for it. David speaks not of partial victories, but of overwhelming victories. And when he repeatedly uses the term I, he indeed sees himself as the victor. On the other hand, verse 40 begins, For you braced me with strength for the battle, and you bent down my adversaries beneath me. In other words, David fought his battles with zeal and with skill, but in some supernatural way the Lord handed the enemy over to David so that the victory was a foregone conclusion before it ever began. I think Christians have more trouble with this particular concept than perhaps any other. We just don't know how to view or to characterize our participation and the things we do for the Lord. Therefore, some of us are nearly 100% passive. And we think that we are to sit in our pews, on our hands, and simply wait for the Lord to supernaturally cause something to happen in our presence so that when we do nothing, we can give all the credit to Him. Others are nearly 100% active. And, and think we're to run around frenetically shaking every door handle on every door until one finally opens. Or if not, knocking the door down is maybe the better thing to do when the handle doesn't work. <laughs> and then flying through it like a bull on, on his way to a red flag. And that red flag being that task or goal that we think that the Lord's put before us. See, some believers are so reluctant to speak of their participation in a ministry or of a mission that all they can speak of is the Lord doing this and the Lord doing that as though their involvement is incidental or meaningless. Others are so caught up in doing that all they can speak of is that I did this and I did that for the Lord. You know, God's just kind of a junior partner in this whole thing. See, in some ways, David may have given us a pretty fair model of how to think in a practical way about our participation in a godly endeavor. And it is certainly not as equal partners. 
but rather it's as a cooperative venture. We have our part, God has His, but we're really just a tool in the hands of the Master. A tool that remains at rest, safely tucked away in a toolbox, is the most useless thing. I know, I got tons of them. (laughs) But a tool that tries to operate without its master guiding it is directionless, may be used for the wrong purpose, can even be destructive. David is not afraid to express his activities and successes and to feel good and fulfilled about them. But it is invariably spoken of in the context of the Lord providing not only the purpose and the means, but also the victory itself in a very real way. Verse 42. It's quite interesting. Because it expresses the reality that the enemy who looks to their gods for help looks to an empty suit. The lights might be on, but there's nobody home. Therefore, to seek their gods for victory is pointless. On the other hand, the enemy of Israel cannot hope to approach Israel's God, Yehovah, because they know of his power, and expect help. Oh, they can thrust their hands into into the air and yell, Lord, Lord! But he'll respond, I don't know you. I think we need to understand how real and tangible this is to David. Even though when we read this ancient verse, it sounds more like a great parable or a a, a wonderfully pious saying to us 21st century Christians. Well, since everyone in that era believed that there were many gods... It was common to acknowledge even your enemies' gods. Some made it their business to know other nations' gods very well, to know their names, their functions, what pleased and didn't please them, and so on. And this is because the general belief was that if you called on a god or a goddess by their proper name, and asked them for something within their proper function, and you did it respectfully, and perhaps brought the the proper gift or appeasement, then you could win that God's favor. So when David says that Yehovah pays no attention to Israel's enemies, that he will never aid the enemy, no matter what they may promise him, it's a great comfort and assurance for David. It ought to be so for us. But David also says in verse 44 that the Lord palat David from the reeb of the alm. That is, God delivered David from his disputes with the congregation of Israel. This is speaking of Jehovah delivering David not just from foreign powers, but from internal Israeli rivals, from domestic problems, from other Hebrews, such as Saul, Akitophel, Avshalom, his own son, Ishbosheth, Abner, 
others. Interestingly, it seems as though David sees David sees his dominion over his own people Israel as a prelude, as, as a first step to his dominion over the nations, over the Goyim, the Gentiles. Now, does that sound a little familiar? Listen to Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation that everyone believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Verse 45 relates to this concept, but it's a very difficult translation. And so nearly every Bible version says it a little bit differently. The complete Jewish Bible, look at verse 45 as I'm talking to you about it, please. The complete Jewish Bible speaks of the foreigners who cringe before David, but then obey him in fear. The King James Version says that the moment that foreigners hear of David, they submit to him. The New American Standard Version says that foreigners pretend to be obedient, but the minute David appears, they properly obey. And so on and so on and so on. The rabbis long ago dealt with this passage, and I think they've got it right. They say it is explaining that non-Israelites, non-worshippers of Jehovah, fear David. And so they conceal the truth of what they really believe and what they really harbor in their hearts and they do so because they fear it will displease David if he finds out. They will lie, they will deny that they actually took up arms in war or were merely against David. In other words, many Gentiles will say that they believe in the God of Israel and that they are for Israel and for David, but only because they don't want to be harmed. But David and Israel's power is so great, so fearsome, that they only come from trembling, only come trembling from out of their fortresses to pay homage to this powerful king over God's kingdom simply so they're not killed. So after David recognizes now that all of these wonderful things have happened and he's really amazed by it all, he once again understands that his is a cooperative venture led by the steady and irresistible hand of the Master. So in verse 47, David offers a praise of thanksgiving to the God of Israel who has given David the power to accomplish such unlikely things and to deliver David from the hand of the enemy when at times it seemed that his survival was impossible and that God even raised David up over those, presumably Hebrews, who rebelled against him. Let's complete this song. We're going to read from 50 to the end. So I give thanks to you, Adonai, among the nations. I sing praises to your name. He is a tower of salvation for his king. He displays grace to his anointed, to David and to his descendants forever.
I love verse 50. Essentially, the psalmist says that the grace that God showered upon David was so complete, so awesome, that the praises for the Lord for it couldn't be restricted or contained only to Israel. But it had to be raised up by the Gentile nations as well. See, this is a classic case of a prophecy happening in one sense at a certain time, then happening again in a higher and greater sense at a later time. David conquered Gentile nations, and with that, the knowledge of the God of Israel spread. And so, therefore, did the praises lifting up, being lifted up to God spread. Yet in a later time, a royal descendant from David, the Messiah Yeshua, is going to bring about the same, only greater. The anointed king of Israel, whose deliverance the Lord had used so mightily in ancient times, was, in the larger sense, not really about David. At least not as an individual. But rather, it was all about David's forever seed that culminated with Christ. Let's move on to chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're only going to read part of it. Here are David's last words. This is the speech of David the son of Yeshai. The speech of the man who has been raised up, the anointed one by the God of Jacob, the sweet singer of Israel. The spirit of Adonai spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, a ruler over people must be upright ruling in the fear of God. Like the morning light at sunrise on a cloudless day that makes the grass on the earth sparkle after a rain. For my house stands firm with God. He made an everlasting covenant with me. It is in order, fully assured, that He will bring to full growth all my salvation and every desire. But the ungodly are like thorn bushes to be pushed aside, every one of them. They can't be taken in one's hand. To touch them, one uses a pitchfork or a spear shaft, and then only to burn them where they lie. That's as far as we'll go, I think, in that today. This song of David that forms the first seven verses of this chapter is usually referred to as David's last words. However, this is by no means the case. We have recorded in 1 Kings chapter 2 a deathbed speech to Solomon whereby King David gives his son some admonitions, some instructions. As a matter of fact, some of it's 
concerning unfinished vengeance. That speech was private and personal, whereas what we read here, like all of David's psalms, was meant to be recorded and then handed down to posterity. So we need to view this as more of David's final oracle than his last words, at least as we commonly think of the term. Now the character and nature of this song that follows the psalm of Thanksgiving in chapter 22 has a distinctly more prophetic nature to it. Even though there are some obvious prophetic parallels in chapter 22's song, it was much more intended as a, as a hymn of praise to the Lord for all of the deliverances and the many blessings that David had experienced throughout his life. Thus we might call the song that begins chapter 23 as a prophetic will and testament of David that more or less unfolds the significance of David's kingship in relation to the sacred history of the future. Now for me, one of the most fascinating aspects of this song happens right at its beginning because whether David intended it or not, and I suspect he was fully aware of it, this entire song is essentially an expansion of the prophetic oracle given hundreds of years earlier as pronounced by the pagan Gentile seer Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. And we're going to start off next week by reading those passages. And as I think will be demonstrated, what we're going to see is a wonderful, a poignant example of the concept of progressive revelation as we compare Numbers chapter 24 with this Song of David in 2 Samuel chapter 23.